another beautiful Sunday morning in Edna, Texas, as we prepare to begin another lesson of our Forerunners of the Faith curriculum. We are continuing our study of the apologists and polemicists of the patristic era of church history, building off of where we left off last Sunday. Today, we're going to look at two prominent polemicists that uh, died in the middle of the third century. I guess I should say the early to middle part of the third century. Uh, those figures are Irenaeus of Lyons and Tertullian of Carthage. Looking forward to seeing how their lives, ministries, and theology formed um, early Christian convictions on some of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith that we hold dear in the 21st century. But in any case, we'll get to that momentarily. Can I get a volunteer to read our passage of focus to get us started? It's going to be 1 Timothy 6, verses 20 and 21. And I'll open us up in prayer, of course, before we read. But all right, Jacob, uh, go ahead and flip over there. And um, as you flip there, let me pray and we'll entrust our time to the Lord this morning. Lord God, you are the creator and the master and the Lord of human history. All of history is engulfed by you for it is an eternal present for you because you are omnipresent and you are eternal. And Lord, it is so humbling to think that though our lives are but a vapor, we're here for a very short period of time and, and probably all of us will never be remembered by generations that come after us. You, though, abide forever. And your name will be glorified and magnified in every generation of human history because you are the author of history. You are the sustainer of history. You are the goal of history. And Father, it is in light of that reality that we bow before you in wonder and awe, desiring to to see and learn about how you have worked in history and to proclaim the testimonies of biblical history and church history to those that we come to know because it ultimately points us to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our, our blessed triune God. We pray, Father, that this study would ultimately lead us to worship. Yes, Father, we do desire to grow in deeper biblical and theological knowledge, greater historical knowledge, and then as great as those desires are, we ultimately desire to know you deeper and to worship you greater. We pray that this youth ministry and this local church in Edda, Texas would be a place where our God is exalted in every aspect of our worship and our lives and may studies such as this be used by you to accomplish those ends. We commit the rest of this lesson to you. Give us wisdom to accurately understand your word and to accurately understand the testimonies of history that are going to be portrayed in the forerunners of the faith curriculum. And as we leave this place, Father, give us rest as we strive to honor you on this Lord's Day, the one day out of seven that you've sanctified for new covenant believers to gather for worship and to rest from ordinary weekly labor. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, First Timothy 6, 20 and 21. Take it away, Jacob. Right. Well, 
that is our opening passage. And this passage really is a good, it's a good preparation for what we're going to be talking about today, especially, you know, that reference there um, in verse 20, what is falsely called knowledge, or I think your translation said science, right? So uh, the, the word that Paul uses here for knowledge is a word that we can, we can rightly translate as, um, as, as science or knowledge. It can mean both. And really, that's what, just so you all know, guys, a lot of times we think of science in terms of the scientific method, right? We, we think of doing experiments and forming hypotheses and testing those hypotheses. That, that's very true. Science does pertain to that. But at its most basic level, science is just it's knowledge, it's knowledge. It's gaining knowledge. Um, and in terms of verse 20 here, that, that reference to what is falsely called knowledge, it, it has a specific narrow reference to what we were talking about during our time last week. Does anybody remember which of the four heresies pertain to this secret ethereal knowledge that was supposedly necessary in order to know God and be saved? Gnosticism. Very good, Hannah. Uh, Gnosticism is what Paul is referring to here when he's writing to Timothy, and that was a very significant heresy that was infiltrating the early church. Um, It was a temptation for true believers to fall victim to the thinking and the doctrines of the Gnostics, but it was ultimately a false doctrine that was refuted. And we're going to look at a figure here right off the bat who made great labors and he, and he put forth great effort into confronting Gnosticism. Now, but before we get there, I want, us to, I want us to revisit just coming off the heels of our study from last week to kind of bridge the gap between last week and this week because it, really, um, it really flows well in our curriculum. You'll notice there is a discussion box Right there before letter A and and that first figure that we're going to talk about here today, Irenaeus of Lyons, uh, there's a discussion box right above it, and there are a few discussion questions. And I want us to talk about those discussion questions in effort to bridge the gap from our time together last week. Let me read that discussion box, and we'll discuss it together. Um, It says, for discussion... What are some common errors today that claim to be Christian but are actually forms of false teaching? This can include cult groups and apostate movements. And how can believers arm themselves to be ready to respond to those false movements? I want us to talk about that as a group uh, before we begin our discussion of Irenaeus. If you don't have your Bible out right now, I would encourage you to grab that because it's going to be hard to uh, look at some of the scriptures later on without your copy of Scripture in front of you. But uh, before we look at some verses, I, I want us to talk about this discussion question, this multi-part question. Start with the first one. What are some common errors today that claim to be Christian but are actually forms of false teaching? Sai. Uh, prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel. Uh, and why would you say that is a, a a false teaching? What would you say is is the if you had to summarize it? What's the main problem? Well, uh, they completely deny 
of God's judgment on man yeah. and make man the pinnacle of that religion. That's right, right? It's about me, right? It's about what, what can God do for me? How can he make me prosperous and healthy and satisfied? Um, you know, it could be even seen as a form of Gnosticism, right? If you just have enough faith, God will do X, Y, and Z for you. In the prosperity gospel, it's always about, can I produce enough faith? Can I give enough money to really kind of convince God to accomplish whatever agenda I have. God is essentially a genie in a bottle that I have to appease in order to enable him to grant me the desires of my heart. Prosperity gospel, certainly false movement or false views. Who are some of the teachers? Do y'all know any prosperity? Joel Osteen's one. Yeah? Kenneth Copeland's another. There you go. So y'all have got a pretty good... Creflo Dollar, there's another guy. Uh, Benny Hinn. There's some false teachers associated with the prosperity movement. Um, okay, what other groups can we name? They claim to be Christian, but they're, they're not really Christian. They hold a heretical doctrine or they uh, perform heretical practices. Yes, Roman Catholics. And, and what's the main issue? There's many issues, but what would you say is the main issue with Roman Catholics? They, they, they believe in a works-based salvation. There's many, many different works that you have to perform in order to um, be right with God. If I could summarize it, we don't have time to get into the weeds here, but you want to know, here's Roman Catholic doctrine of having a right relationship with God. You were only as justified as you are sanctified. You're only as righteous in the sight of God as you are made holy. So your righteousness before God depends on your holiness. That's why purgatory is so important in their theology. Because if you die and there's any remaining sin within your soul, that soul or that sin has to be purged in purgatory. It has to be cleansed so you can then enter into heaven. Hannah. I feel like, I don't know like, what group this would necessarily get into, but a lot of people like to say, like, just manifest it, just like, speak it into existence, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And they talk about it like it's a good thing, yeah, so like New Age spirituality. I mean, that's kind of even naming claim it can be a form of prosperity gospel as well. But New Age spirituality, the idea that you'll hear, and this is what you'll hear a lot of YouTubers and, and, and like the young, young people about my age or maybe y'all's age even um, that are popular on social media, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram. You'll, you'll hear them say things like this. The universe will give me this. Um, it, it, it's only right that I, I have to have good energy, sending good thoughts your way. That's, that's the mindset in that group. Um, any others that y'all had? Did I see, Lily, did you have your hand up? Yeah, I had like a, like a quote or something, but it's not like, um, when people say follow your heart, like follow your heart. Follow your heart. I, I would say that's probably, um, probably prosperity, prosperity gospel, I'd say, would, would fall into that, you know. Um, God wants to bless you, trust in, trust in that that voice inside of you that, that's driving you for excellence, so on and so forth. I think that could fit into that group. Of course, we talked about Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses as well. Um, they they you know, deny the full deity of Christ, um, deny the Trinity in the Jehovah's Witnesses group. Um, well, even in Mormonism, it's polytheism, so they deny the Trinity as well. Um, so polytheistic groups deny the full deity of Christ, so on and so forth. Definitely not Christian groups. 
not to mention works-based salvation as well. So how can believers arm themselves to be ready to respond to those false movements? So let's, let's apply this. What can we do as Christians to ensure that we're equipped to speak truth in love to those who are ensnared in these false systems? What do y'all think? Ellie? Yeah, read your Bible, study it, um, hide the Word of God in your heart so you can, you can share it with others. Uh, that's very important. Absolutely, Ellie. Hannah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You have another one? Yeah, fellowship with other Christians. Being able to uh, sharpen one another through sharing what we know and, and how we've uh, interacted with people in these groups and being able to uh, be better equipped to do that based on successes and failures that other people can share with one another. How about church history? Where does church history come into play in that, in that question? Is there anything new under the sun? No. no, right? So a lot of like if so obviously the word of God is our ultimate standard and authority. When you're having discussions with people, you start there, right? People that are Roman Catholic, people that are Jehovah's Witnesses, people that are Mormons, people that are part of the prosperity movement, right? You always start new age uh, spirituality movements those groups we talked about just moments ago, you always start with God's word, right? God's word is the power of God to bring about salvation, right? But sometimes God does use evidences that are consistent with the testimony of scripture to bring people to enlightenment, to show them that, hey, man, maybe I need to rethink some of these beliefs. Most of the errors that you're going to find in these groups you can take it back to its origin in church history and say, hey, look, this is when this started. This is not what the apostles teach. This is not what the Bible teaches. This started 10, you know, you know, 10 centuries later, 1,500 years later, 500 years later, whatever the case may be. And if you can show them that their view is novel, it's not found in the Bible, it's not rooted in Scripture, and it's, uh, it's something that... Typically, some wacky person created throughout the course of church history. If you can show that to somebody, it's going to put a rock in their shoe, and they're going to have to deal with it at some point. Any other questions or thoughts or comments before we turn to Irenaeus? I don't know if it's Irenaeus or Irenaeus. People pronounce it differently. I find myself pronouncing it differently. Kind of like, is it Augustine or Augustine? Uh, A lot of debate on that, but um, letter A... Irenaeus or Irenaeus of Lyons, he died in the year 202, we know that for sure, and he was born around the year 130 AD, that's the first blank in your workbook for Irenaeus, 130 AD was when he was born, so he lived about 70 years, maybe 75, he was born a little bit before 130, but as a young man, Irenaeus had a connection to Polycarp of Smyrna, which linked him to the Apostolic Fathers. Do you all remember who Polycarp had a connection to? Which apostle? He's familiar with his writings. He's He's familiar with all the writings of the apostles, but... All right, you guys don't remember. It's John. John. 
So, so Polycarp had a personal relationship with John, and he was clearly, based on his writings, he was familiar with all of the New Testament writings. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how for anybody to say that these guys didn't have access to the New Testament or to say that the New Testament was written centuries after the first century, it just doesn't hold water because we see quotations from the New Testament literally in the 50 years after the apostles died. I mean, it had to have been written in the first century. It just doesn't fit with the historical evidences that we have available. Um, but So Irenaeus, is, he's one generation removed, right? You have John who mentored Polycarp. Polycarp mentored Irenaeus. So um, Irenaeus had a link to John through Polycarp, who is a protege of John. And Irenaeus became the bishop of a church in the Roman province of Gaul, in what is now Lyons, France. His most famous work, called Against Heresies, was written to refute the false teachings of Gnosticism. That's the second blank. It's a very famous work. I actually took a class on patristic theology in the summer of 2017 under the renowned patristic historian Dr. Michael Haken. And we were able to read several excerpts from Irenaeus' work against heresies. You can find it online, I'm sure. I think it's free online. Um, But Irenaeus, he's most known for his work in refuting and um, interacting with the Gnostic beliefs that were permeating the patristic Christians. Now, notice that excerpt that's in your workbook. It says, Irenaeus pointed to the scriptures to defend the truth and also to refute the errors of the Gnostics. I want somebody to read that um, excerpt from Against Heresies, and then we're going to look at that excerpt section by section, and we're going to show how that excerpt is rooted and grounded in several passages. So somebody with a workbook to read Irenaeus' first excerpt. Can I get a volunteer to read that? Uh, it's that first paragraph. It's got a uh, bold Irenaeus. Yeah. We have learned there. not others the plan of our salvation than those through, the, through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did, did at one time proclaim in public and at a later period by the will of God handed down to us in scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. Very good. Okay, so I want us to break this down. So the first part of this excerpt that I want us to break down, it is we have, so we're going to go from the word we, and you see the and right there after the word public in that excerpt, if you have a workbook. You guys all see that? Okay. So we have learned from none others the plan of our salvation than from those through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public. That excerpt, okay? Somebody pull out 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 to 13. So i go ahead and pull that out for us, please. And if you have a copy of Scripture in front of you, I encourage you to follow along. Again, we it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 13. And we're going to see how that passage 
correlates with what Irenaeus is saying. Amen. So I wanted to read that whole passage because it's a a single unit of thought. Uh, Verse 13 is the capstone of what Paul writes in verses 9 to 12. But verse 13 is is really at the heart and soul of what Irenaeus writes there from we to public in the excerpt we read. Notice that he says, We've learned the plan of salvation from those through whom the gospel has come down to us, and that gospel was proclaimed in public. And look what Paul writes in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, We thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So the word of God performs its work, its work of salvation, in you who believe. It was publicly testified. The word of God that came from the apostles was publicly spoken. It was, in fact, the word of God. And again, you have that First Timothy two two, or excuse me, that Second Timothy two two principle of the apostles taking their knowledge and taking their truth, handing it down to godly men, and those godly men taking the truth they heard and passing it down to other godly men. And then those people taking that truth and passing it down to godly men. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. And that's what we're doing today, friends. Your task is to take this truth that we have heard from faithful witnesses in public and as recorded in the Scripture. We are to take this truth and we are to entrust it to other godly people to likewise do the same. Obviously, we evangelize, we share the gospel, we make disciples of all the nations. And when we do so, when we have disciples, when we have converts that we train and that we disciple, we take this truth and we pass it down, and it goes on and on and on and on and on until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Okay, so that was the first part of that excerpt I wanted us to break down. The second part, um, look at this, from the word and to the word scriptures, and at a later period, by the will of God, handed down to us in the Scripture. Somebody look to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. All right, thank you, Hannah. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 to 15. You've got your Bible in front of you. Make sure you're flipping to those passages. Yeah, whenever you're ready.
and believe them true. So this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. All right, so thank you, Hannah, for that. So two aspects. Uh, notice, by the will of God, um, these, referring back to what Irenaeus wrote in the previous uh, portion of the excerpt, by the will of God, these truths about the plan of salvation, these truths about the gospel which were proclaimed in public, were later, by the will of God, handed down to us in the Scripture. Notice verse 15 of what Hannah just read. The traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So Paul's saying that what we've taught to you through oral testimony, what we have done in terms of our one-on-one spoken discipleship action, that is equally binding as what we have delivered to you in writing. Our writings are just as authoritative, just as binding, just as sufficient to bring you to salvation or to bring others to salvation as what we've spoken. So when we read the Bible, it's as if we are reading the, or it, we truly are reading the spoken words of the apostles, but view it like this. When you're reading what Paul writes, it's like Paul's saying that to you right now. It's like I'm speaking to you. So when you're reading Paul's writings, view it as he's writing that to you. It is effective for your spiritual good. It's personal, just like one-on-one discipleship would be, just like a conversation would be personal. And then there's part three, to be the ground and pillar of our faith. So this plan of salvation, the gospel that has been proclaimed verbally in public and was later by the will of God handed down to us in the scriptures, it is the ground and pillar of our faith, says Irenaeus. Part three of that excerpt, corresponds, I believe, well with 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. Who wants to read that text? 1 Timothy 3 and verses 14 and 15. Um, Wit, take that, buddy. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Absolutely. So the so think of it this way, guys. The scriptures, which are the standard and the authority that forms and shapes the local church, is the ground and pillar of the faith. It, it is the support of the faith. The church goes only as far as the scriptures. It goes no further than the scriptures. It goes no less than the scriptures. The church goes as far as the scriptures. It is the ground and pillar of our faith. Now, going into this next excerpt that you should have in your workbooks, um, Buznitz notes in our curriculum that Irenaeus also identified the basic Christian beliefs that had been handed down from the time of the apostles Here's how he described those theological truths. Now, you notice each of you should have a handout that says the Apostles' Creed. This is the earliest Christian doctrinal statement that, you know, there's, there, there are statements of faith in the Bible that we can find if you're interested in, in seeing a list of those statements of faith. Uh, in, in my first introductory lesson on the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, 
I, I think I listed like 10 or 12. I don't remember the exact number, but there were several statements of faith found throughout the New Testament that the earliest Christians professed and believed. You can go back and, and access those if, if you're interested in finding it. It's on the church website. It's also on my sermon audio account. But um, this, this Apostles' Creed, as we're going to read from Irenaeus here, it was written at some point during the second century, and it could have even been earlier. I mean, think about it. Irenaeus died in 202. Everything he's going to say in this excerpt lines up with what we find in the Apostles' Creed. So it could have been written earlier than Irenaeus. It could have been written around the time of his life. But Irenaeus has a robust Apostle Creed doctrine undergirding this excerpt taken from Against Heresies. So I gave you a copy of the Apostles' Creed just to have in conjunction with what we're going to read from Irenaeus. You'll notice the entirety of the creed in the handout I gave to you. Uh, there are numbers next to the um, different clauses in the creed with key scripture references. You can access this as well online. But in any case, somebody read that excerpt from Irenaeus, and I'll read the Apostles' Creed, and I think you'll see the significant overlap there. Who wants to read Irenaeus for us? Somebody with a workbook. I know that narrows it down. Ellie, go for it. Very good. I appreciate that, Ellie. And uh, I'm about to read the Apostles' Creed, and I forgot to say this just a moment ago. Uh, it's not called the Apostles' Creed because the Apostles wrote this creed. I hope that's clear to everybody. It's, it's called the Apostles' Creed because the doctrine that is espoused in the creed is consistent with the doctrine that we find espoused by the Apostles in their New Testament writings. So uh, don't, don't make the error of saying, yeah, the Apostles' Creed, I know about that. The Apostles wrote that. No, that, that's not <laughs> The apostles did not write this. Uh, this is, again, this is taking what the apostles wrote in the New Testament and, and putting it into words that summarize what they write. So let me read that. Listen, I mean, I think it's strikingly parallel with what we just read from Irenaeus, but I'd love to hear your thoughts as well based on what we just read together. Follow along with me as I read the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Mary, excuse me, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into paradise. The third day, he arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the church universal, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. What do you guys think? Based on what we just heard from Irenaeus and against heresies, 
Do you hear echoes of that in the Apostles' Creed? Yes or no, maybe. I see a lot of heads shaking. Yes, I, I see some people who look like they're in their own little world. So, uh, No, it's okay. I know it's early, but I know this is a lot to take in. But um, do you have any questions about the Apostles' Creed insofar that it's written? Do you see anything in there that you disagree with or that you have questions about or that's confusing? Everybody okay with it? I mean, if you're okay with it, you're in good shape because it's, it's been regarded as a, a pretty much a litmus test of orthodoxy for about 2,000 years. So uh, if you disagree with the Apostles' Creed, you, you do have some uh, issues to resolve with the church Catholic from 2,000 years. And notice church Catholic does not mean Roman Catholic Church. It means the church universal, uh, the universal assembly of believers from all ages going back to the apostles. Okay, well, we've looked at Irenaeus' life, and remember I, I mentioned that he died in the year 202. He, uh, like so many of the other figures we've learned about, he was martyred for his faith. He was put to death for his faith in Christ, for his faithfulness to Jesus, and for his boldness to defend truth amidst the significant error that was present, not only within the church, but outside the church. But we do have a question we need to discuss, and this is going to correlate well with what we just read in the Apostles' Creed. Here's our discussion question. It's right there in your workbook as well. You can follow along as I read it. The Gnostics, confronted by Irenaeus, Irenaeus, taught that there were many gods. They were polytheists. The Gnostics were polytheists. So, what passages of Scripture would you use to refute the erroneous idea of polytheism? And the second question. The Gnostics also denied that Jesus had a real human body, so where would you go in the Bible to disprove that idea? Yeah, he was born of a virgin. That seems to indicate that he would have had a real human body, right? People don't give birth to non-people. And to be a person, you've got to have a human body. Notice this too, guys. Just, again, think about the backdrop. I just want to make a quick note on this. When the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, that phrase spoke right against the polytheistic beliefs of the Roman Empire and of the Gnostics who self-identified as Christians. They believed in many gods, not in a god, not one god. Um, so let's start here. Let's start with that, that idea of monotheism, right, that Irenaeus was trying to defend and that we should likewise defend as Orthodox Christians, where would we go in Scripture to show that there is only one God, that God is only one being? Where would you go? You don't have to have an exact chapter and verse reference, but um, just a general idea of, of truth in Scripture. Yes? Yeah, the question was, where would you go in Scripture to prove that it teaches that there's only one God, that God is only one being. John. Okay, John. Where in John specifically? Uh, 
chapter one where it's like mm-hmm. in the beginning there was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. Yeah. So and even there you have one God and there's multiple persons that are that are within the being of God, right? One God who exists in a plurality of persons. That's great. I have five passages that I'm going to give to you. Um, that I, I mean, there's way more than that, but just if you're taking notes, you can have them. But I want to hear you guys first. Ellie. We definitely show a plurality of persons. Now, a lot of people look at that as, well, there's, obviously there's three gods or one God who's manifested himself in three different ways. But I think, I mean, you can, I could make an argument that, yeah, they're, they're all identified as God. They're not separated from the singular being of God. Um, but that would be a little bit harder maybe uh, to convince some people just because it's not as explicit. But I like, I like your thought there. What about the very beginning of the Bible? The very beginning of the Bible. The very first verse, in fact. I mean, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One God. Not the gods. Not some gods created and others did other things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Pretty good Pretty good place to start. That's where the Bible starts. God is one being. So Genesis 1.1 is, is, is a passage you can write down from the Old Testament. Uh, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. God is one. So Genesis 1.1, Deuteronomy 6.4, if you're taking notes. Michael, do you have one? Have no other gods before me, right? Me, not the gods. Me. Great, Michael. That's a very good one. Exodus 20. Deuteronomy 6.4. Go ahead and write down Exodus 20. You've got the Ten Commandments there. So there's three Old Testament. Looks like we're going to have six. Thank you, Michael. All right, let's go to the New Testament. I'll give you some. Again, many we could go to. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, and you could really extend it through 6, but verse 4 gets to the heart of it. You can write 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but, does it say many? No, it says one, right? And then he goes on, Paul goes on, he, he takes, this, is, this proves the deity of Jesus, by the way. This is an additional bonus about this text. Not only shows that God is one being, but he extends, he says, hey, you know that Shema that the Jews used to profess and have professed for uh, millennia? Yeah, Jesus, that, that Shema applies to Jesus. He is God. Jesus is God. Notice verses five and six. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So he, he takes the Shema and applies it to Christ. And, he, and, and he did, in doing so, it shows that there's a plurality of persons within the one divine being itself. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6, Galatians 3.20, another explicit text that I found. Very simple. A mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. God is one. He's one being. 
Make sure you're clear on this with your friends. God is not one person. He is one being. God is three persons. So make sure you're very clear on that. He is one being. He is one substance. He is one essence. There are different terms you can use there. In 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One God. God is one being. Okay? So we've looked at passages that explicitly teach monotheism. What about Jesus having a real body? Um, Hannah mentioned how Jesus was born of a woman. Humans do not give birth to non-humans, right? There would have to be a human body, presumably if, it, if a person came out of another human. What other text though would you go to explicit text jesus was a real human he had a real body it wasn't a mirage ellie he had wounds right at the cross he got stabbed in the side with a spear right real bodies bleed and and can get stabbed and can get um harmed and affected hannah Absolutely. That's one of the ones I had. It's very uh, Now, of course, the argument would be, well, how do you know the word is, is Jesus? Well, John spends the whole Gospel of John showing how that's the case. So, um, But that's a great text. I, I wrote that one down. Any others? Would they, like, stuff the spirit inside of, like, water Yeah, no, yeah. We said... Yeah, no, that's right. I'll give you a few. Um, This is interesting, and and this is all written by John. John really had a thing for confronting Gnosticism during his day. He loved to. 1 John 4, 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. 1 John 4, 2 and 3. How about 2 John, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. So John's saying you cannot be a Christian if you deny that Jesus had a true human body. Two other texts that we can look to as well that I found just quickly. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So, verse 14. Jesus likewise partook of flesh and blood, just like we partake in flesh and blood. And 1 Peter 2.24, last text we'll look at on this question. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Well, it says he had a body, and it says that he had wounds. Right? I mean, hard to get around the fact Jesus was a real human being. The Bible clearly teaches that. Whip. Also, when he was like hungry in the huh, Yeah. Real human bodies are going to need food to be nourished. Ellie. What about when he, was, when he cried and he wept? 
When he wept, right? Yeah, it shows human emotion, right? I mean, I think you could make the argument there that a real human being, a real human body is going to produce real human emotion. Absolutely. When he got mad and flipped the tables, right? Uh, and that's that was. And, and let me just say this quick aside. I know we've talked about this before. Sometimes it's sin not to get angry. Don't fall victim to the belief that many so-called, uh, I don't want to say so-called, many well-meaning Christians uh, hold to this view, but it, it's, it's misleading. Don't believe that it's wrong to always, don't believe that it's wrong to never get angry, that you always have to have this kind of like, oh, well, I'm at peace. It's okay. No, there are times when a situation demands anger demands righteous indignation. Now, you've got to be careful because you and I are sinners. We're not Jesus. And we could very easily cross that line of going from, hey, righteous indignation to self-righteous pride and, 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 and unrighteous displays of anger. And you cross the line into sin. Jesus was able to model the perfect response to every situation he was ever in. We struggle to do that. Um, so like, for example, it should anger us about laws that are pro-abortion. That should anger us. It should anger us when people don't take the word of God seriously. It should anger us when unjust rulers impose unjust laws upon citizens. We got to just be very, very careful when, uh, when we do feel righteous indignation to not go too far, right? There's a passage. Let me make sure I quote it right um, for the listener and for you guys that, that attest to that. I just felt like that was needed to to be said, bear with me here. Ephesians 4.26, be angry yet do not sin. Do not let the sun set upon your anger. So there is a, there is a, it is possible and there is a right time to show righteous indignation. Again, you just got to be careful with that. Does anybody have any questions, though, or comments about Irenaeus or Gnosticism or anything else before we transition into Tertullian? Okay, let's look at Tertullian. Tertullian of Carthage, born around the year 155, died around 240, lived a very long life compared to many of his contemporaries during that era. Tertullian was born in North Africa in the city of Carthage, and Tertullian is traditionally thought to have been trained as a lawyer. It's interesting, throughout church history, many great theologians had training in law, helped them uh, learn how to study documents well, helped them learn how to think logically, and and, and to be able to engage in sound forms of argumentation. Um, it's, It's just incredible to see how God used that throughout church history, but Continuing on here in our curriculum, Busnitz notes that uh, Tertullian exhibits a high degree of education and rhetorical ability in his writings. He was the first major Christian author to write predominantly in Latin rather than in Greek. That's why that he is known as the father of Latin theology. So that's the blank, uh, first blank associated with Tertullian. Tertullian is the father of Latin theology. Now, here's the interesting thing you need to know about Tertullian. If you forget everything that we talk about um, with respect to Tertullian, you need to know this, and it's very easy to remember. Tertullian is the first 
theologian during the patristic era. He's the first person we know of throughout church history, in fact, that uses the term Trinity to describe God. So think about it. Tertullian, Trinity. They both start with T's. It flows well. Thank the Lord and his providence that the name is, is, is unique and you can liken it to Trinity. In describing the reality of God's three in oneness, Tertullian was the first person to use the Latin term Trinity. Trinity literally just means threeness. Tertullian firmly upheld the truth that there is only one God, yet he also recognized that the Trinity consists of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as a defender of Christianity, Tertullian wrote an apology or a defense as well as a number of polemical works, including a polemic against Marcion. Now, who can recall who Marcion was? Does anyone remember what he did or who he was? Okay. Has something to do with the Bible, the canon of Scripture? It's okay. I'll recall. I'll help you guys remember. Marcion was the guy who thought in the Old Testament God was portrayed as a God of wrath. In the New Testament, he's portrayed as a God of love. So we've got to take out all the parts about God's wrath that we don't really like to listen to a whole lot. We really like the God of love. And what he basically did was he threw out much of the New Testament, pretty much the entirety of the Old Testament, and kept select parts in the New Testament that spoke of God in a loving manner. Marcion. Um. Now, Tertullian was also strongly opposed to the idea that Christianity should be influenced by Greek philosophy. That's the third blank associated with Tertullian. Tertullian identified Greek philosophy by its birthplace in Athens and the church by its birthplace in Jerusalem. And that's where we get this famous excerpt from Tertullian that we're going to read out loud together after I answer Michael's question. Yes, sir. You know, I never thought of it like that, but Michael, you may be on to something, brother. Marcion could be the first prosperity gospel uh, advocate because he didn't like speaking of the, the judgment or the holiness or the wrath of God. It makes a lot of sense to believe that because, like, in the Roman culture, it was, like, there were Greek gods, like, back then. And then as they turned into Roman, they turned into, like, calmer, more, yeah. Well, yeah, and the whole idea was how can we appease the gods of their wrath so they can show favor to me and my family and my, my army and so on and so forth, right? How can they bless our, our fertility and our agricultural endeavors and, and things of that nature? Well, who wants to read that excerpt from Tertullian for us? Thanks, Hannah. Very good. Now, what do you think about Tertullian there? Um, first and foremost, do you think do you think he's right in juxtaposing Greek philosophy 
with biblical truth. You think he's right to do so? Why do you think so, Whit? Right? But what if Greek philosophy agrees with biblical truth? That's, what I, that's the mystery I want us to unravel together. Fair question. I see, I see this, guys. This is important. I see an inconsistency in Tertullian here. What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? That is one of the most famous. You study church history. You talk about the historical view of what does philosophy have to do with theology or what does philosophy have to do with the Bible? That's essentially what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? What does philosophy have to do with biblical spirituality? And the fact of the matter is Tertullian's inconsistent here because when we talk about God, when we talk about the Trinity, you were ipso facto using terms and concepts that were rooted and grounded in Plato and Aristotle to talk about God. God is one essence. He ha- he is three, God is three persons who subsist in the divine essence. I just use essence. That is Aristotelian hypostasis, which is the Latin for person. That's used in Greek philosophy as well. Um, you, you, if you're going to talk about God to really capture what Scripture is teaching, you have to use philosophical categories that that allow you to 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 summarize and explain what's in Scripture. Anytime we talk about the Trinity and we start talking about the intra-Trinitarian relations between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are going beyond anything in the Bible in the sense that nothing in Scripture is going to use that terminology. Nowhere in Scripture are you going to hear... Um, let, me, let me say it like this. If I were to say that... that um, the Father eternally begets the Son, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and Son. You're not going to find that language in Scripture. What you are going to find is that reality taught in Scripture. Um, God is one essence, and within the divine essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit subsist. That's not biblical terminology, but it is biblical truth. So I think Tertullian, I think he's creating a chasm between Greek philosophy and the Bible that in, on the one hand, you don't need to adopt Greek philosophy wholesale. There are a lot of issues with Plato and Aristotelian thought, but there's a lot of good within Plato and Aristotelian thought that allows us to speak accurately about God and about Scripture. And, because, and think about this. God has revealed truth in nature and in Scripture. So insofar that it's true, it comes from God. I don't think we need to make a hard distinction between what God has revealed in nature and what God has revealed in Scripture. We need to analyze nature discerningly, but we need to, when we acknowledge truth in nature, we need to recognize that truth is coming from God. As long as it corresponds and is consistent with the Word of God, we should embrace it. And we should, we should champion God's grace for revealing such truth to us. Do you guys follow I mean, I mean, seriously, if anything I've said is confusing or, or hard to, to understand, please you know, let me know. This is the time to address those concerns.
Well, I've set you up for my next question then. Since the word Trinity is not in the Bible, how should we regard the use of extra biblical terms when describing theological truth? Is it wrong to use terms or concepts in the Bible or that are not in the Bible in order to describe what the Bible teaches? Or should we only be stuck with biblical terminology? Hannah. percent agree. So. I like going off what Hannah said. Trinity means three. And the Bible describes God as three and one. Mm-hmm. So you're you're saying the same thing but with a different word. Yep. So it's not like we're twisting the meaning. No, not at all. You're, you're, you're explaining what the meaning of Scripture is. That's what you're doing. Michael, did you have your hand up? Oh, okay. No worries. So yeah, so I mean, obviously be careful. Here's the lesson. Be careful with studying non-biblical resources, whether it's philosophy, whether it's commentaries, whether it's creeds and confessions of faith. Be discerning. Be very intentional in making sure what you read is consistent with biblical truth. But insofar that it is true, know that it's from God. God is the God of truth. All truth comes from God. Whether you're talking about truth in English, truth in science, truth in truth in um, history, truth in technology, astronomy, whatever the case may be, all truth comes from God, whether in nature or in Scripture. And to prepare to bring our lesson to a conclusion, we hear this tragic tale of Tertullian's. Uh, He did not finish well, uh, to say the least, in his life. In spite of his theological precision in some areas, Tertullian eventually joined the Montanist movement. His association with that movement has made him a somewhat controversial figure in subsequent church history. Can somebody tell me what the Montanists believe? Does anybody remember from last week? It's okay. I'll remind you. It's new. The Montanists believe that God provides secret, personal, direct revelation that is not found in Scripture. That God provides you with secret, personal revelation. He speaks audibly to you, and it's your responsibility, says the Montanists, to listen for the voice of God. And um, what it ultimately does is it undermines the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture can lead to very dangerous doctrines to be formulated as well. So Tertullian, unfortunately, did not finish well, and that's a tale for all of us to humbly remember that we have a responsibility to ensure that we safeguard and uphold to the authority of sacred Scripture, that Scripture and Scripture alone is our authority and it's our guide for all aspects of our life and all aspects of our worship. It is very dangerous, very, very dangerous to go beyond what God has said in his inerrant word. 
Well, that brings us to the conclusion of our Sunday school lesson this morning. I enjoyed the fellowship, enjoyed the discussion. Looking forward to a great time of corporate worship with you guys. Uh, if you haven't gone to worship just yet, let me close in a word of prayer and we'll head over to the sanctuary. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you again for this Lord's Day and for the privilege that it's been to to study two figures that though they were not perfect, though they had their flaws, they were used by you to help safeguard the truths of your word and to help formulate efficient and effective and true articulations of what you have revealed to us in your word. Father, I thank you for men like Irenaeus and Tertullian to lay the groundwork for future generations of church history. And Father, though we know Tertullian did not finish well, we, we, we just know that he uh, is entrusted to your care and that um, only you, Father, know the outcome of, of his eternity. And, and that's the same with us, Father, that only you know, only you know the outcome of any person's eternity. It's up to us, Father, to just strive to be faithful, to strive to be obedient to what you have commanded us in your word and to leave the the outcome and the results in your infinitely wise and holy plan. May we submit to you, God. May we depend upon you in every aspect of our lives. And may we be found whenever you call us home or whenever Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, may we be declared by you to be good and faithful servants. May these studies of church history and its correlation to your word, to draw on us to reflect on passages of scripture. May all of this during our weekly times of gathering lead us to greater worship of you, greater service of you, greater evangelism of our community and of the nations, and that you would be supremely glorified in all that we say, do, and think so that we would become more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen.